Hello everyone and welcome to the Grumpy Surfer podcast. I'm your host, Ads Lyson. My guest today is a Royal Marines Commando Corps legend. He spent the last 32 years serving in the Majesty's Armed Forces and served and operated in more countries than I've had hot dinners. It was a true treat to sit down and talk to him about his early career and also his family's lineage in the Royal Marines. So please enjoy a Grumpy Surfer's conversation with my friend, Matt Wildgoose. Matt Wildgoose, welcome to the Grumpy Surfer podcast. How are you doing? Not too bad, pal. How are you? Yeah, very good. How's life at the moment? All right? Yes, yes. Not too bad. It's uh, obviously nothing much changes in the mess. At the moment, we seem to be doing quite a lot of decorating, so uh, which obviously needs it. But yeah, it's uh, not much changes down there. Yeah, of course. Cool. So at the moment, you're currently the sergeant's mess manager at 4-2 Commando, yeah? I sure am. What sort of job role do you have there? You know, what's your day-to-day business? Well, it's basically the accounts, and I am really the landlord for the RSM. So the RSM, privileged as that job as a W01, has his own bar, and I run the background of it, the finances, some of the organisation. Uh, so when a, a W02 gets given a function, for example, uh, he would run it as pura as he wants it. But because I've done so many... They tend to come to me and just say, look, have we done to this before? Have we done that before? What would be new? And I've done a format f- for them now and then give it to them and say, this is, you know, you could use this or you could use that. But if you use this guy, he does it for free or he's an ex-bootneck or former bootneck. So I try and keep it within the family of the core and guys who I know have just gone outside to try and keep it with, with us. You know, why use someone who does that when you've got, like the Magic Marine, for example, is yeah. a classic example, what, use that when we've got a former Marine there who would, you know, work from it. And actually, because of the stuff that he's done now, he's got quite famous, you know. Yeah, nice. I feel a little bit quite privileged, and you're going to probably cringe while I'm saying this, um, is that you, you to me, being an anti-tanks, you know, before, mm-hmm. I, was a, before I was a PTI, um, you were a little... Well, you still are a, a bit of a core legend to me, anyway. Um, you know, wh- when when I first passed out of training and then subsequently did my anti tanks course and so on and so forth, your name always cropped up. And then when I eventually met you here in two thousand three, was two thousand three the end yeah. of Telic? Just after Iraq, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, when I joined support company, um, you were there, and I was like. This is going to sound really cheesy, but I was like, is that Matt Wildgoose? It's like, yeah, it's Goose. And yeah, it's, uh, your name sort of like has has a following with it. Um, you probably don't think that, but... Um, I suppose that's a bit like when uh, when I joined Tanks, it was people like BJ Farramond and Steve Isaacs. You know, yeah. they were uh, proper old school tankers who had all, not necessarily all been down south, but, you know, had all these war stories and, you know, what they said went went a lot better oh sorry went a lot better but just just put it in a little bit like sort of like there you go, right that there. yeah that's yeah. cool yeah so people like steve isaacs and uh and bj farriman when i joined they were the names of uh who were pucker legends as anti-tanks so it's quite nice to hear that you said that i didn't realize that no no it is and uh there's a lot of other other names to, um you know from from my time do you remember uh gogsy yeah yeah doddy yeah. Daddy. I'm not going to mention surnames. Dogsy. Yeah, Dogsy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's an officer now, isn't he? He's now an officer, yeah. yeah. 
Um, names like that, you know, just kind of fly about a little bit. And people are listening to this, like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But these are kind of like legendary names um, that, yeah. you know, you kind of hear as you go through. And, and in the Raw Marines Commandos, being quite a close, small knit community as well, yeah. you always hear those names knocking about. Whether you know them or not is yeah, completely different, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and uh, being tanks, you'd only have three troops, so there'd be 40, 42, and 45. So you only ever went to those three troops, so you'd know of, even if you hadn't met them, uh, you, you knew of them. And uh, so it was quite nice, you know, and obviously my era, we, we all went through together, and it's almost as if we grew up together, you know, like Briggsy and people like that. Uh, and Pop, well, Pop uh, went, out, uh, went outside as a corporal, but uh, uh, Briggsy uh, was a colour sergeant, and he would have made a fantastic sergeant major. And people like John, uh, Johnny D, uh, why he never made RSM, I do not know. You know, he's uh, the ass dadges in there. But uh, yeah. people like that are uh, fantastic soldiers. But I thought within tanks, because as a tanky, uh, uh, you do the GD role, but you just, you know, you uh, use a bigger weapon system. And that's why I went tanks, cause, uh, because of that, you know, after an island tour got pinged to go to logs. And it was the only way I could get back into a commando unit was to do something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go back a little bit. So um, we'll talk about, you know, the early part of your family. So your your dad was in in the Corps, wasn't he? Yeah, my, uh, my old man did his, uh, uh, did his uh, nine years in the Corps. He did a little bit less than that. But uh, yeah, he, uh, he was a CL2. Uh, never actually did his juniors. Uh, he was in four five, four two, and I think based in Eastney in those days, Eastney, uh, Stonehouse. But yeah, he was a CL two, so he was one of the original MLs uh, in, in the uh, early fifties. So when when did he join up? So he joined up in fifty two. Fifty two. Yeah, and went out in sixty. So that was just short of uh, obviously nine year, his nine year Marine. So we were just in things like a he's little in, bit. He's at Egypt. Uh, Suez, uh, and fought in Cyprus in the Trudus Mountains. Okay, nice. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So he he's got three bars to his GSM. In fact, the old GSM uh, they used to call the four B two because the colours would look like you know were pussy's cleaning cloth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah. So on his four B two, he's got four bars on it. In fact, he never got his Suez bar. I had to claim that for him uh, years later because they didn't they didn't rate it as a war apparently. Oh really? Yeah, so I got that for him. Did he ever hear when you were growing up? Did he did he ever spin any like stories or anything? Do you know like what? That? I knew he'd been in the corps, and I think my brother came back from school and he was talking about what they'd done in history, and he said, "Dad, have you, did, were you were you in the army?" He sound you know sounds awesome, and he went no, and I remember my brother being like really disappointed, and he went no, so now I was a commando. He never actually said he was. He never said he said the corps, but he never said marines. He always said no, I was a commando. And I suppose that's because he grew up during the war and commandos would have been on the wireless and commando raids. And we were like, commando, what's that? You know, and then, you know, he, he'd never really span us any war stories. And, I, you know, I almost didn't know he'd been in the Corps until my brother joined up, because my brother's so much older than me. And then when my brother passed out, my dad, it, my, the house became like the drill shed. It used to have every King Squad photograph and, you know, every picture went up, you know. But my dad, you know, wouldn't have known he was in the corps until my brother joined up. 
Did your brother join up when you were still at school, did he? Yeah, yeah. So he's eight years older than me, so I'd have been only ten. Okay. Uh, uh, when he joined up. So, uh, no, in fact, I was less than that because it was eight years. So he joined at 16, so I'd have been eight. Oh, yeah, so seven or eight. So, yeah. so my brother coming home and my brother was a legend in his day, you know, uh, well, still is in my eyes. And, uh, you know, and he'd come home with stories. So I'd got a little bit bored of my dad's war stories because it was all about uh, war. And when you're 14, 15, you know, interested in girls and smoking, maybe. And then my brother came home from Hong Kong, three years in Hong Kong, started spinning these <laughs> bits of going ashore and the lads and the heat. Of course, you don't see, from your dad's point of view, the bagging off stories, you know, the, the war, going ashore stories. And then my brother started telling these stories of, well, no, actually what the core, the social life is about. So I, I, I like the idea of the soldiering, but the social life, was something, like, that sounds awesome. Yeah. I guess it's like now, I mean, you've got kids, I've got kids. It's one of those things, isn't it, where... Um, you try and tell your kids something or spin a few stories to them and you're like that, fucking cheers, Dad. Yeah, yeah, very much and so. They yeah. Don't, and they don't really listen. But then, you know, when you've got when you've got siblings like brothers or sisters, you're kind of feeding, especially older ones, you know, if there's yeah. an eight-year difference, you're kind of feeding off their experience a little bit yeah. and almost like trying to emulate what they're, what they're doing. You kind yeah. of feed off them, don't yeah, you? So I joined Cadet Wayne before then. Uh, my brother gone to the Falklands, so you know, at school, and of course, living in Derbyshire, it wasn't like down here where a, a, you knew of people who'd gone uh, up there up in Derbyshire. You know, hardly anyone knew anyone in the forces. So suddenly, my brother going to the Falklands, and suddenly the Marines, the Corps being on telly every night, and then it suddenly hit home that uh, you know that people were dying. You know, and uh, I remember watching Crossroads with my mum and dad. And John Knott came on and said, HMS Sheffield has been sunk. And my mum going, uh, looking at my dad. And my dad wouldn't have known. And my dad just went, oh, yeah, it's a frigate. Don't worry, he wouldn't have been on that. You know, we didn't know where he was. You know? Yeah. And I remember suddenly going, oh, my God. You know, my, my brother could die, you know. And that was eight. And then going to school, and people were going, oh, is your brother dead yet? Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. You know, it was like, you know, kids are evil, aren't they, to each other? Yeah. You know, when you're like, fuck, fucking hell, you know, Jesus. You know, and it was quite a bit of a... So when he did come home, it was even more hero worship, you know, and and then the stories, of course, like Hong Kong and stuff like that, and then going to Northern Ireland, but, you know, the, the, you know, the stories. And then I remember joining cadets and having all these magazines, you know, combat survival magazines, and looking at the pictures of all these ponchos and, you know, and how to build a whatever it was. Um, and looking at my brother's thoughts, and I remember looking at this poncho, and it was in the Combat and Survival magazine, and then my brother's thoughts, and in the photographs, like the poncho was rigid and not a crease. And I went to my brother, so you, your poncho looks better than the one in the magazine. And he just went, well, because it's a pongo. <laughs> and just shrugged his shoulders. And I went, oh, oh, oh yeah. It's never occurred to me that my brother would be better than the person in the magazine. <laughs> so if anyone's listening, they don't understand what Pongo means. The Pongo is a derogatory term that we use or, or what we call jack speak for uh, someone that's in the army. Yeah. I'm talking about infantry regiments now. I'm not talking about specialists. I, I, you people who are educated, like you get certain engineer regiments. I'm, yeah. I'm talking about certain uh, egg and thistle regiments that, uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so that... So that, you know, me, hero worship my brother and then having my dad in the corps as well. That's, my mum really got a scene off. She met my dad when he was just leaving the corps and then 
obviously as soon as her brother joined up you know all she's ever known is war after war after war in fact we've covered obviously missing uh not every operation but between me my dad and my brother we've covered more or less every major conflict that the uk especially 4-2 have been involved with since well since 1952 yeah it's crazy to think isn't it i mean um, yeah, I've talked about this before where I feel a little bit privileged in a way that when I joined the Corps in 2000, that I just so happened to hit it in the in the right yeah. time um, where, I mean, I suppose in the way it's good for being a soldier, but negative for world press where the, you know, the Twin Towers happened yeah. and then, you know, subsequent things happened after that, Afghanistan, Iraq and mm. all that sort of thing. So from a soldiering point of view and a warfighting point of view, I hit it at the right time. And yeah, definitely. Yeah. But the last major conflict, Bar Island, would have been the Falklands. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So um, we we, we, were, we sat, and I thought I'd done a few things, and then you'd hear, like the tanky legends, you know, the Isaacs and uh, B J Farrowman and all them that talk about like, real wars. You know, I thought, well, I've actually been in Northern Ireland and done a bit of policing. You know, and. As a three-year Marine, you thought you'd done a little bit, and then you'll actually listen to soldiers that actually done stuff. You're like, oh, wow, you know. So, yeah, I totally agree. And when September 11th happened, you know, I weren't with 10 years with one medal, and then suddenly got a medal every year, you know, from September 11th. You know, I just happened to be in 40 when it happened, and we were on safe Surreal. So we were literally next door. Everyone says, oh, yeah, they sent the Marines in first. They're the best. Well, sent the Marines in first because we were literally next door, you know. So 40, you know, went straight in. So let's go back a little bit. So you're looking at magazines and, you know, you're talking to your brother about, look at this poncho and, you know, I'd, I'd probably say it's like combat survival magazines <laughs> yeah, yeah, and shit was, like yeah. that. Um, so what what made you turn and go, do you know what, I'm going to join the core too? Or was it kind of inevitable you were always going to do it anyway? I think it was always going to be that case, no matter what. And... Uh, I remember people saying, oh, what happens if you don't get in? And that was just, just, what? what do you mean not going to get in? And, that, and it was just, an, you know, I remember at the careers office at school saying, well, you've got to plan to go to college because you might not get in the Marines. And I remember just thinking, are you crazy? Of course I'm going to get in. And it was just a, almost like a booting attitude of, I will win, I will be there, and I'm going to pass. And I think I think that's because of the way I was brought up, where my dad was, after my dad uh, left the Corps, he was a fire officer, a uh, part-time fireman, but he ran his own unit and he ran it like a bootneck. Wood, a chilled, back, uh, chilled attitude, but stern rules, and this is how you do it, you do it properly, and that is one rule and that's it. Yeah. That's how he ran it, and I was just brought up like that. You know, you can do that. You know, if you're good at it, then you can, you might be able to be lazy at it, but if you you can't do it, then you've got to do it the right way, or the pusser's way. But like my brother used to say, there's a fine line between pusser's and professional. And you know what? You're having a go at him. He's doing it right. <laughs> you know, so, uh, yeah, so it was always, yeah, I'm joining the Corps and that was it. I think uh, I like to have thought early on because my, my, da uh, my dad had been LC2 and my brother was a corporal at the time. I wanted to beat him, so I, I, for a bit I was saying I'm going to join the Corps as an officer, but I'm just too bone. <laughs> I'm just, uh, I just never had it to uh, educationally to do that. But uh, I loved doing the fizz. I put up. I was sixteen when I joined up. So did your brother help you with the training and stuff? Did he? Or? He taught me some uh, real good basics. Like he taught me how to do a regain. Well, in fact, my dad taught me how to do a regain when I was six. 
Oh, really? And That's crazy. So we, so we had, because uh, we lived uh, in Bakewell in Derbyshire, we lived a place called Lumford, which behind us is a wood. So my dad built the Tars and Salt Course in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> Jen. That's mental. Yeah, yeah. And so we had the Tars and Salt Course. My dad and my brother built a uh, fire trench with nightsticks. Explain what night, you know, just crazy jungle routine, really. Uh, and my dad, uh, being a gamekeeper after he'd, uh, before he joined the Corps and after, uh, you know, we'd say things like, oh, you get a thing called hexi-blocks. Uh, well, my brother said that, actually, because my dad said, he, oh, hexi-blocks don't start, use PE. <laughs> Light in PE, but oh, that's a bit crazy. Uh, so, uh, and my dad, brother used to say, oh, don't carry, uh, don't try and light them. They're a nightmare in the wind. Just carry some uh, lighter fuel and squirt it on and light it. So loads of little tips like that. Like my brother saying in the field, if someone's got a straight fag who smokes in the field and it's dry, He's a good soldier. And you know what? That's pretty not far off because he can keep his fags dry in this weather. You know what it's like on Dartmoor. Yeah. Uh, you know, little things like that. Uh, I think we, I remember a brother saying uh, when you pass out a train and he said, uh, it's a bit like driving. You learn to pass your test, then you learn to drive. That's like being a bootneck. You learn to pass out and then actually you go to a unit and learn how to do it properly. You can learn to cheat in a way as long as it's you achieve the aim. So yet they helped me that way. And obviously doing regains as a hobby uh, did quite well, especially when it came to training and climb a rope. So I could climb a rope as a little boy, not just struggling with your hands and getting that strange feeling. Uh, uh, but, you know, using your legs. And uh, so that really, really helped. And then he taught me marksmanship principles as well and explained, because he was a PW, explained what they were instead of being shouted at and, not bullied in training, but not quite understanding and being thrashed for not understanding. He explained what it was and why you did it. And so little things like that really did help. Other not. Yeah, well, of course it would. I mean, like, <laughs> if your brother would have been the PW, yeah. platoon weapons, um, I think I'd have been all right too, yeah. instead of fearing for my life. Yeah, exactly. Time. And you no, know, I still fear for my life. You know, you're still scared of the training scene. But he was... Uh, I think he'd just done his PWs as I was joining up. Then my first summer leave, he was waiting for his first team to join up. And uh, so I, he'd go, right, where's your first folder? And I'm like, oh, I'm on leave. <laughs> leave me alone. No, get your first folder. I want to have a look, you know. And uh, I was like, oh, my God. But I had an awesome affairs folder. So when I went back to work and he was, so when we went back after your three-week leave and everyone else was like, oh, God, I spent six weeks here. I think I'd, uh, I'd done three weeks uh on leave and everyone I'd been doing speed marches every day with my brother but we'd gone ashore every night but uh, we'd done speed marches every day and <laughs> me re rewrote my affairs folder he says you can't read that <laughs> and I was like well that's alright innit you know it's just you know he made me rewrite it which stood me in brilliant stead really yeah but I uh, wasn't expected to do things like that on my first leave <laughs> so when, when did you uh, when did you join the Corps so it would have been 26th of June 1989 1989 I would have been eight, <laughs> eight years old. That's all right nowadays. So the hey, sergeants now in the mess. That's before they were born. Some of them. There, there are there are people now joining the joining the Marines, where that hadn't even been born yet when I joined. So it kind of puts it into context a little bit sometimes, doesn't it? Because yeah. you, I think we're all. Every single bootneck, whether you're still serving or you've left, still have Peter Pan syndrome, don't they? Oh, definitely, yeah. And, uh, you know, and I, uh, 
And one of the things that kind of hits me a little bit is that I'm still doing the same things now as what the 16, 17, 18-year-old lads are doing now when they pass out of training, which is kind of, I don't know, is that a good thing on my behalf or is it just stupid because your body's going to fall apart when you're older? I don't yeah. know. Well, I don't know. I mean, I purposely came and saw you last year when I've been in th 30 years and did a four-miler, you know, because I wanted in my head, I can still do it, you know, do a four-mile speed march and try and do it, you know, I think we were like seven seconds over. But we did it, and now it was just like, I will do this, I will do this, you know. You weren't seven seconds over, you were bang on the money. Oh, I thought but, I said No, I'm pretty sure you, you were. you put on the Strava, it was that, because I got the wheels amount of abuse from old oppos. Oh, no, well, because I, we, we'd, um, on my, on my watch, because it's a little bit older, it, like, it cuts out some places because you don't get the GPS signal. Right, do you hear that, H. Rob? I remember you slating me on their Facebook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell him to thin out. Tell him to do it when he's your age. <laughs> See yeah. what happens. From having all this uh, advice from your brother and your dad and going through those gates, um, just put it right up here. There we go. Um, getting all that advice from your brother and your dad before you, uh, before you joined up, you know, do you remember how, how you felt stepping off that train platform and and uh, and going up for like your day one, week one? Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, when I'd done the P, it wasn't called the PRMC in there, it was, I'd done the PRC uh, and they were, I, remember, I remember them being, I was more scared on that and there was loads of uh, TA guys all being in the RMR and I think I was the only junior there, so I'd have been, and I had to take time off school to go and do it. I was more scared then than actually joining up because I'd learned so much about and knew so much about Limston. And and also I was aided in the ad advantage by dad and my brother saying, look, you, everyone's going to feel the same way. Don't worry too much about it. You know, so I think I was more scared of the PRC than I was actually joining up. And like er everyone had like, been in the cadets, they expected to be underwater knife fighting the next day. You know, I didn't realise I'd be half man, half ironing board for the first couple of weeks ironing and using starch and pulling boots and it was just oh wow you know what's all this about but uh you know i didn't know any different you know i was 16 and you got told off at school and that's what you get you know i think some of the older ones found it harder because they were like, oh, I'm not used to being treated like a child i suppose i still was a child you know you know and, and i acted like a child and i don't think I'd, until i'd been to ireland i think i hadn't really i think i did a lot of apologizing to lads who i'd been in training with years afterwards when I bumped into him because, you know, I literally was a kid, you know, acting like a child as well. You you get to, I mean, I, I was 17, 18, and even then I feel like I was, I was still mentally Im immature, physically capable, mm -hmm. unaware I was physically capable because of that immaturity yeah. mentally. Um, and I think sometimes... That can be, a, like you're saying, that it can be a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. If you've had a little bit of worldly experience behind you, then, you know, you can lean back on that a little bit. But then if you're literally just coming out of school and all you know is that you're trying to, you know, get Jesse Smith's nicks down or have a kiss <laughs> yeah. behind the bike shed, yeah, yeah. that's all you kind of know. And then you put into, like, the real world. Yeah, exactly, yeah. You kind of just... You're never in front of it. You're always behind it, trying to catch it up. Yeah, I mean, uh, I remember going down to the Nod's Head. It's Turk's Head, isn't it? In the next Turk's Head, yeah. So I had my first beer in, first beer in there, and want desperately to have a beer. 
and suddenly realised I'm not going to get served here, you know, especially when you just had your hair cut. And, you know, not only was I 16, I looked 12. And uh, I had... Uh, That's you. That's my mobile, isn't it? You know, going to get my first beer in uh, in the Nod's Head and suddenly realised I'm not, I'm not actually going to get served here. But with me was a lad called Brumdooley. Do you remember Brumdooley? I remember it was, it was here when... Um... When I first joined yeah. back here, like three years ago, in Brum, I mean, heart of gold, that man, you know, and uh, I think he's actually still in the core, actually. And so he was ten <laughs> years older than me, so he was twenty six, and he went, "Oh, you aren't going to get, you're not going to get served, mate. I'll, you know, uh, I'll buy you a beer." And uh, and I will always remember that, yeah, Chris Dooley, and the most unfortunate man ever, you know, he's got pot belly, horrendous Brummy accent, this unfortunate birthmark on the side of his head and the tiniest cock you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> Someone's got to, haven't they, though? Someone's got to have a small one. Yeah, yeah. but excellent guy. And, uh, you know, and he'd been in the TA before and got his green lid through the TA, which is unusual. In fact, the TA unit he got it, I was a PSI of. Years later, permanent staff instructor with the RMR, that they transferred over to the RMR, that detachment. Uh, yeah, so years later, actually went to where he was taught but Thierry was a yeah yeah he's a great guy bit of a flapper but great guy so when you passed out of training where, where did you um, where did you end up after that I came here 4-2 oh did you yeah so my brother and my dad had all come to 4-2 from training so it just seemed right that I should follow in their footsteps uh, you know and uh, I begin to regret it at first because uh, 40 uh, and all the other units all uh, either went to Northern Ireland before I did or I had one-offs like Kurdistan or the first Gulf War, whereas 4-2 uh, to do ships detachments. But uh, I missed out on all that because obviously I was still a junior when I passed out. So I wasn't sent, funny old thing. Well, why would you choose a junior? Yeah, so if you're under the age of 18, you can't deploy, yeah. can't you? So I, wasn't, I was just 17 when I passed out. So, uh, uh, But I was unfortunate by going to M Company. Uh, uh, and I say that because it was horrendous. Absolutely. The bullying was horrendous and I've never seen it since or I wouldn't want to see it you know I know I remember being a troop sergeant going if I ever come across people like that you know I'm gonna run you out the core if I can because they were horrendous absolutely it's just not on you could give a couple of examples well they're called Daz Daz Timbers remember Daz they actually set fire to him really they actually poured napper on him (laughs) he never told me that fucking yeah yeah that you know that's just that's fucking not on you know, uh, this this is not like funny stuff. This yeah, is yeah. fucking out of order. You know, there's two guys who were, they'd been to Belfast, so they were fucking legends. Apparently, been there in the core three years, and one of them, you know, you know one was 28, uh, uh, and he was just a fucking bully, big tall ginger, cunt. You know, and I always said if I ever came across him, I'd kill him. Literally, if I came across him in Iraq or an opportunity, I would kill him. And the other one was a good soldier, but he was a bully. I mean, horrendous bully. And, uh, yeah, it was horrible. Actually, I've got fag burns, on the, still to this day, in the back of my neck. You know, they're cunts, you know. And it wasn't until I went to L Company, after a year of fucking horrendous bullying, you know, it wasn't our fault we didn't go to fucking war. And apparently it was our fault, you know. Well, what would you know? You just fucking out of training. You know, I went to L Company, and suddenly people like Ed Stout and Robbie Roberts, who'd been in the same time, you know, I mean, do you mean you don't know this? Instead of getting filled in, they go, oh, no problem, mate, I'll show you. And suddenly, oh, you're allowed to ask questions by people who've done the same tours, but L Company was completely different, you know, and they were just genuinely, 
excellent, you know, Ed, Ed Stout's still a friend to this day, you know, Robbie Roberts, brilliant, I think he made a W1 uh, Robbie, in fact, Ed's a bloody cap, uh, lieutenant in the Navy now, isn't he? Uh, you know, and he got to W one as well, and that you know they were generally oh you don't know oh no problem, you know suddenly flapping oh god what's he going to do oh yeah I'll show you how to do it or oh, we'll reteach that, you know and suddenly oh right oh oh my god I remember my brother and my dad talking about this core, not the one I'd just previously been with in the M company where, you know the weak corporal who didn't stick up for us, uh you know and obviously a weak sergeant you know he didn't know anything about it you know he's an outlier so he went out uh, you know. It was just horrible, just horrible, horrible days. Yeah, days. I mean, I think I, I kind of came in maybe at a tail end of that because I know when when I went through training, it was, I mean, for me personally, it feels like I was the tail end of like maybe the old school. Hmm. But I don't think that's old school. They're just cunts. You know, because you know, there was, if I went across to another company, like the people I talked about, they were generally done exactly the same things but were willing to help you. Whereas, you know, these were just bullies, you know, and, you know, not necessarily good soldiers either. Yeah, but you probably, being a young lad, you probably thought that was the norm. Oh, yeah, to I an did. Extent. Yeah. And I kept my mouth shut. And I remember letting it slip to my brother. And he went fucking ballistic. He was going to come down here, fucking, you know, his big brother. And I was like, no, do not come down here, you know. <laughs> he was going to fucking tear the place apart, you know. Yeah. And I was like, do not. And he died. And, and it, what, I remember even, uh, locking myself into my room in, in M Company because my brother had spoken to someone who just happened to be at CC who knew one of these guys. And then he was like, oh, yeah, tell your brother, are you? And I was just like, fucking hell, I can't, I'm just talking to my brother. You know, it, down to reading your mail. You know, take your mail. It was just fucking... That that does sound something like you get in a school playground, doesn't it? Yeah, a little oh, bit horrendous. You know, the stereotypes yeah. of like stealing your dinner money and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah you wouldn't really brother, expect me, that, would you? My brother gave me a Normark, but when I passed out, they, they, they took that. You know, the he, uh, the other one took my berry, the berry that I was presented with. They actually took that. You know, and I just, you know, I said to him, oh, I've lost it, you know. And he's like, oh, fuck, that was the one you were presented with, you know. I never told them, obviously. It's just, you know, just arseholes, you know. But luckily, I've never come across anyone since then like that. And one of them, I think he had a, motorbike accident and got md'd out and it was almost as if there is a god you know uh, uh you know you got what you deserved it's almost like that sits because i'm looking at your face while you're talking about it it sits quite deep with you that doesn't it, it does yeah yeah do you know what it's almost a bit like ptsd in a way you know I, and the and the things i've been through has never been as bad as that oh really yeah even you know some of the horrendous things we've seen in afghanistan you know at least i could go back and talk to people we couldn't even talk to it, you know. They wouldn't let. It was just horrible. Yeah, horrible. And they, they were rebelling. Because what was I? Just seventeen, and I was nine stone. Because you're going to pick on, you know, you know, just arseholes. Yeah, but I don't really want to talk about that. It's just fucking. It's a a blip, a blip in my clear that was my career that was just horrendous, you know. And joining tanks where, you know, generally fucking good soldiers who generally have a laugh and enjoy themselves. You know, it's uh, that's you know, I've spent more time in the core laughing and enjoying yourself and meeting genuine guys than that little time I had in my first year in the core. Yeah, I mean, I've I've all gone through my whole career. Um, I mean, I was quite fortunate that I did my anti tanks course what th two, two, three years um, out of training, 
Um, and, I, and I did a bit of a swap draft with someone who didn't want to do it. They wanted to go on a boarding team um, out in the Gulf somewhere. So I took that off them and it was probably the best thing I ever did. Mm. And even to this day, and when I was on a recruit training team, I used to tell the nods when they got to the tail end, one of the best branches you'll ever join is anti-tanks mm. because you've got the older guys that are a little bit chill, more chilled out you get a little bit more freedom because we know what it's like. Not all the hierarchy know exactly what anti-tanks do, so you get left alone as well. <laughs> yeah. And and it's super cool. And, you yeah. know, you got the anti-tanks branch within the core. I mean, I don't know what it's like now, but it was like a proper niche, small community. and yeah. Everybody knew each other, whether you're in Scotland, Plymouth, Taunton, or wherever it was, like you all kind of knew each other. And it was like, yeah. it was proper good, like, you know. Yeah, I mean, when we first got, I first got to tanks, it was you know three big troops, and they were eighty strong. These troops, uh, so and but we didn't have the equipment that what we got. Obviously, when we started going to war properly, we just never had. We were bloody masking taping Milan's on top of one tunnies. You know, eventually we got pin scours and uh, forty broke down the pin scours and took the screens down and you know made like these mobile anti tank. Uh, stalking units and I remember doing god gunning there was me and Briggsy from 4-2 and Nook Naughty little Mark Edwards hey hey yeah. hey hey fellas i got a cracking story about yeah, him later on excellent guy yeah. uh, he runs the cadets major in cadets now is he yeah he uh, yeah so uh, so we went up and did some god gunning for uh, 40 and I remember seeing because we had uh, likes of Wes and people like that uh, in 4-2 and then we got to 40 and then suddenly it was Steve Isaacs and people like that and uh, and Beige and all them and they were doing proper anti-tank stalking tanks teaching people turn the engine off the wagon listen tanks allowed listen for them and we were following them and I was like my god I'm actually learning something here this is awesome you know they're letting they're letting the guys do it on their own stalking in vehicles in dead grounds and it was just get rid of why have you got a trailer I remember being saying that for years why have we got trailers on the backs of these wagons? What happens if we come into contact? We can't reverse. And uh, they'd bin the trailers, hung everything off the sides, and it looked like, to me, uh, like the old Paddy Main SAS Desert. And I thought, that looks awesome. They'd got GPMGs, spare GPMGs, had them. Basically, what a, uh, you know, what a, a wagon in the Afghan would have. Yeah. Uh, a jackal. But they were improvising, and it was brilliant. And they actually stopped... Uh, the exercise they had to re they had to stop Tessex and go right okay you we're gonna have to stop go back uh because you beat them tanks just won the whole exercise because they took out all the armor front and the, so I took that knowledge straight back to four two and we'd do Tessex and win and they'd actually stop the exercise and go okay right uh we're gonna have to do this a bit like when the snipers did Tessex and they used to say right you're gonna have to put more body armor around you with the test equipment because you're just stalling whole companies. Uh, we were doing that, and it was it wasn't until Commander Twenty One where it was a regular because it wasn't until we found out we just thought the norm at Tessex was yeah you win don't you and it gets stopped and you have to go back and it wasn't until Matu's course you know army registers were going oh, no we, no no we get beat all the time what do you mean you get beat oh, well they know the know the ground what have I got to do with it you know so yeah so the playing at soldiers era. Uh, with tanks before it became Commando 21 uh, was really, really enjoyable because you had a massive troop and you'd have guys who wanted to go on the deployments and you'd always go to that one section. 
So in 95, for example, I did 10 countries in one year because you get blokes who genuine welfare, you know, well, I can't do that. So they get put into that section. So you get all the keen Marines and queen corporals, uh, keen ones in one section. And a section was 20 men in those days, six, three detachments and a sergeant mm-hmm. and his driver. So he had four wagons and you'd be attached to L company. And then if there was, you know, a unit excise, uh, uh, and there was no tank threat to L company, you'd, that whole section would then move to M Company, so you'd have two sections with M Company where the threat was. So, and you always, if you had enough numbers, you had a mobile reserve, which became the MSG and Commander Twenty One. Uh, so you'd have this massive armoured front where you could move around the companies as and when, and have a proper battle plan. So in Tessex is when it was all about armour. Uh, you know, we we did really well. You know, when we actually got noticed. It was really weird because um, do you remember when? When uh, when Commando Twenty One came in, I was um, I was a uh, was I Lance Jack then a Lance Corporal I can't remember, but I remember coming to M Company and the OC was a was a new boss, mm-hmm. and all the lads were off doing something, and they went they came to me and went uh, Corporal Lyson, do you want to go with um, the OC down to uh, Warminster? They're um, they're testing this uh, new computer kit where. Um, you sit in front of a computer and the other companies and the enemy are there and you plan your battle and it's basically like playing playing soldiers but moving the company groups and the units around the battlefield that's basically on a um, on an OS map yeah yeah but you move all that round and I was like oh it wasn't really an ask it was kind of a voluntold and I went there and uh it was really, really weird. I had a mate, he, he's obviously a major. I was a Lance Corporal and I was basically running the whole company Yeah. because he didn't have a clue yeah. how to how to operate an anti-tanks troop and use the, um, use the Marine troops to support yeah. the anti, the support ranks. So like the, heavy, the, the machine yeah. guns, so, the, the anti-tank weapons and stuff. And, I just thought that was crazy, yeah. you know. But then I took a lot away from that as well, saying, you know, I, I was probably out, uh, out of training maybe maybe four or five years, and I was like that. I actually know something here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd, I'd done my ones, even though I was still a corporal, I'd done my ones before Commando 21 came in. So I found it really frustrating having seen how it works within the commando unit, this anti-armour plan, and it's called a goose egg and, and killing areas and... Uh, how to plan, and as a sergeant, you advise, look, the company commanders won't know. They are specialists but in their own field, but they won't necessarily know anti-armour plans. So you need to advise them, and you were constantly uh, taught as a sergeant to advise uh, company commanders on a battle plan, and, sir, this is what I can do for you if, you know, I need your men to be 94s as it was then, or Carl Gustafs, actually, uh, 84s and 94s, uh, to plug this area because of this dead ground and we've got a, you know, dead uh, dead ground here and dead ground there and you plan your own area. So when it came to Commander 21, we could overlap all our battle cards as they were and you should have no, no way in. And if there was a route where you couldn't fire into, that's where you put your 94s into. For example, put got to Commander 21 and it found a lot of people out because... Uh, you could hide in, like I said, you could hide in tanks, 80 strong. But a lot of people who weren't quite, did the fizz and d- enjoyed the soldiering, 
you suddenly that section you were a troop now that 20 man section was there known as a troop you then got a one pippa strong training in charge of you and then suddenly you were doing grab fizz every day uh so the guys who'd hidden rapidly went to different sqs and you know oh i don't like it here because you're permanently in a gd company and they rapidly got found out and i, and I know for a fact there's people within mortar troop if that would have happened to mortar troop there's people who were in mortars who got very high perhaps they wouldn't have got as high because they would have been you know their fizz clearly that isn't about being a soldier the fizz but you know they would have been found out straight away and wouldn't be able to stay with mortars for example yeah and uh yeah they, we it was a bit of an eye-opener going i think i went to m company yeah i did yeah uh, uh went to m company as a troop sergeant and uh you know it, it was suddenly right on Tuesdays, we used to go up and get the BV, uh, not B, or BVs. We were going to Norway or Pinskowers, as it was then, be, uh, after the uh, one sunnies, and we'd spend the day chipping and painting and sorting out the wagons, sorting out the cam nets and all that. And when I said to do that on an M company, they went, "No, you can't do that. You'll get the wagons when we go on exercise." I said, "Well, they won't. They won't work. <laughs> they, were, you know, you can't do that. You know, and all the stuff that we'd practice." Uh, uh, to go and you know charge the you know boring stuff like charging the air bottles and getting the stuff like no, no that, that's that's your anti-tank stuff you're doing gd training if you want to do stuff like that in your own time you can do that on wednesday and uh, uh friday afternoons i thought but this is essential stuff to the maintenance you know and it, it let the battle plan down you know in iraq we had no night vision because the tq who's a pti didn't know what a air bottle was he goes, yeah, they're, they're disposable. No, no, the battery's disposable. The mm. air bottle's rechargeable. Oh, I've binned all them. What? So we had no Myra cover uh, on the L4. You know, where's the where's the unit uh, UTE? Where's the UTE to test the equipment? Oh, that's way too heavy. We're not having that in the uh, TQ stores. We've been that. But that's to test the equipment. You know, so once we had a an actual storm and he would have charged the air bottles and knew what the kit gear was, all that was just thrown out the window and we had so much skill fade. You know, AFE wasn't in the programme. And, and as a Marine, I hated doing AFE. I suddenly became the biggest spotter at, uh, as a sergeant because I, no, we need to practice, especially when it's a rack. Like, guys, you're not going to see a close-up slide. You're not, you are going to see a, an image on the a sort of horizon. So AFE is uh, armoured fighting vehicles. So basically when you... Um when you're training to learn what different tanks are from lots of different fighting vehicles from different countries, we used little micro models, didn't we? That had like all those distinct yeah. features like um, barrels, where the um, where the fuel tanks sit, where the different barrels sit, the uh, air, extra air extractors. Fume extractor. Fume extractor was on the barrel where that sits. The road wheels, where they sit, are they together? There's lots of different things combined with it, but it wasn't just um, but it, yeah, tanks, was it? It, no, was it was APCs, aircraft, exactly, helicopters. And also, you know, uh, and there were certain people within the uh, troop who were just amazing at AFE, and they would then tell you, oh, well, the reason for this is, you know, if you saw this type of vehicle uh, and they're in pairs, it means it's flank protection, or if it's in threes, it means it's this, and the you know, motor rifle regiment. And what I thought was boring as a Marine, which was... Uh, uh, known as Soviet tactics then. Gen Force. Which then became Gen Force. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it was, oh, that's just old tactics. Of course, a rack happened. And I said, well, 
That's if you see, right. whoa, whoa, hang about. We need to go back into all this. This is stuff that we were told we'll never need. We, you don't need that. You know, you're being, uh, you're being a dinosaur. Being constantly being told you're a dinosaur. We don't need that. To suddenly, right? This is life's on the line here. You know, guys, if you see a T four fifty five few minutes trucks, I've got a little room off now. Uh, 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 the you know that they work in threes. If you got four, that's the company command. You know, and there should be nine in the troop, and and so on in your old Soviet tactics. Uh, suddenly that became very relevant. If you see pair, that means that means they're two k away from the main force that could be east or west. So that intelligence you're passing up is vital to the plan. So when we went to the L four, they had MTLBs, uh, mini turret long back. I don't actually know what it actually stands for, but that's what we used to say. But uh, MTLBs. Now their job is to pull artillery uh, D20s, uh, artillery bits. So I remember being told that in Iraq, and I said, "Oh, that means we're fighting an artillery unit." And I remember uh, the OC. Well, how do you know that? Well, because that vehicle tows this equipment. Oh, we haven't been told that by in yet. Well, I'm telling you now, we're fighting an artillery unit. That's where we're going is an artillery unit. Mm. So it was little things like that that had been taught over the years by uh, Eric Barber and our 3s course, so we all took the Mickey out of. But actually, you know, what he was teaching us was, you know. My God, this is actual uh, uh, life-saving and intelligent stuff that we should have passed on. It is a little bit. It's, it is a little bit crazy, isn't it? Because I remember doing that, and you'd have been exactly the same like that. Oh, for fuck's sake! What are we, what are we doing? Playing here? it with these little toys. Yeah, again. And, yeah. And like, why am I learning this? We are never ever going to do this. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the realism kicks in, and like you say, you start seeing those. Um, you see, start seeing those APCs, and you start seeing the the different structures actually set out in front of you, while you sat there watching on whatever um, optics it is, and you go, do you know what? This this was actually taught for a reason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember Eric Barber, dodgy Eric, who taught us on a threes course, saying, "Watching the news will never be the same again. You will see the news, and you'll see." I think Chechnya was on at the time. And, you know, it will never be the same. And it wasn't. You know, you're like, oh my God, that's a sunset. That's T72, you know. And, you know, watching the, even the news today, I'll say, oh, that's such a sort of chore. And you can tell straight away by how China's come on in the world market because Tiananmen Square, they had T62s. Now, I don't even know what they've got now, but they definitely haven't got T62s. Got Transformers, that's what they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. But go to show how much that country's come on in 30 years, which, which tells me through AFE, you know. Yeah. So in the early 90s or the mid 90s to sort of like the early aughties, you were, um, were you just doing like island tours? Yeah. So the lads I was with, uh, uh, Steve O'Connell, Chaz, uh, uh, Dave Taylor, as he is now, Dave Pollitt, uh, uh, Titch Bryant, Pob, all those guys were in the same troops, uh, tra- uh, Dogsy, uh, in, and uh, we'd basically grown up together. We did Norway Island, Norway Island, Norway Island. We were very good at Norway, you know, and very good at playing soldiers, very good at pretending to blow up tanks. Uh, So that's all we seem to have done, apart from you did the odd Caribbean tour and and Curry Trails, and I love the Curry Trails, uh, and Belize, so Belize, and I did three Caribbeans as well, which is not quite the jungle, but it's it's hot enough and close enough to be a jungle. So I I learned more soldiering schools from anti-tanks working in the jungle and commando uh, and the jungle school as well which i thought was fantastic a you know, brilliant uh, brilliant soldier i can understand why they do sf selection there um and on my first brunei <laughs> was uh got to jungle school and they went oh you're not allowed to speak <laughs> what 
<laughs> and like called Dave Buxton, who's uh, who's uh, SF now, you know. Uh, and he, we realize as I speak, he's like, well, well, we'll start you off in five minutes and then 10 minutes. Because the first five minutes of not speaking, no one spoke, and then the first 10 minutes, you don't speak until he's about building up to an, and a half an hour, then it was an hour, and then it was a day. Uh, uh, and then your feel signals suddenly become, you know, n- normality, you know. And I remember pointing to the ring finger and that meant your wife. And, you know, so you'd be able to sit there. I remember sitting opposite uh, some of the mortars lads, pointing to your ring finger, obviously slagging off his missus, going, you know, <laughs> your missus is a one-eye. <laughs> like this. And then, and because you're not allowed to laugh, it's even worse because he started laughing. And then we learned to get each other on bites just before we were going into the next hour of not speaking. So I remember Dave Braxton saying, oh, fucking hell, I'll be about goose. And I was like, no, what's that? He had an ND, didn't he? And I was like, no, no way. And then we weren't allowed to speak, so I couldn't even explain myself. <laughs> Trying to explain yourself in sign language that he just made that up. But then blokes couldn't speak to you. And I was like, well, no one's speaking anyway, but they wouldn't look at you. <laughs> so I was so lonely. No one's, like, no one's even looking at me. <laughs> Quality. Yeah, it was uh, those first brewing eyes were brilliant, and you know you learn so much. The trackers, the soldier. I think I read uh, Devil's Guard when I was did me first brewing eye and going, oh what this is this is poker relevant, and uh, yeah, I thought the soldiering there was awesome, and uh, you know combats go black with sweats if you've been as you know uh, doing operational tours, and it wasn't until I'd done some proper tours again, you know, and people oh I'd, look how dirty he is or you know, look at them. Like, well, that's because that's sweat. It turns black. Do you mean it turns black? You've obviously spent no time in the field. You know, and you you rapidly, it's got a bit of a growth. And you know, it's just little things you learn. Uh, uh, living in the field for, I'll say, a long time. You know, oh yeah, carry a wooden spoon in the field. That's that uh, you know, it doesn't make much noise. Well, a lot of crap in the jungle, it rots away. You know, you add in a plastic spoon or a metal spoon. It needs to be tied to you because you're going to lose it. Especially in Norway, you're definitely going to lose it because. All that crap you carry in your, in your pockets, it goes everywhere. Yeah. Just pull them out, it's like a snake's wedding oh, everywhere, God, isn't it? Oh, I remember one guy <laughs> called Pete Lewis, he lost a well, second hand dit, admittedly, but he was in the uh, few tech being support company. He'd lost us, well, we didn't know he'd lost a spoon, but he dripped and he got blisters after skiing 4K. And then his feet were that cold when he took his boots off, he found his spoon in his boots. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, I mean, uh, <laughs> things like that. But I was always crap at skiing. Even though Norway was, again, hard work, but I preferred the jungle. It was just, especially I, the life firing. I I, I liked the, um, I liked Norway and and the Arctic environment purely because it's similar to the jungle. But I think your admin has to be more on the ball with it because oh God, yeah, if, yeah. if 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 you haven't, and it does sort you out. So if you're one of these people that just pulls everything out and you've just got crap everywhere. Mm. Yeah, you're de- gonna, definitely. Yeah. You're going to learn quickly that you do, you can't do that. You haven't got time to do no, that. No, otherwise, your fingers yeah. are going to fall off. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and you learn to be on sentry. You don't. You're not a minute to relieve someone on sentry. You should be a minute before. You know, you learn really fine uh, things. You know, you're never late on sentry for someone in Norway. You know, you rapidly learn to be one minute before. Uh, that's a, it's a good time to relieve someone on, on sentry. And you know, you duvet boots and if wearing duvet boots on sentry with moon boots isn't necessarily a good thing because they were the slippiest thing going down that communication trench and so on. And then you get there and you look in the trench and you're like, oh my God, especially if you've relieved it, what have they done in here? Because the white snow shows everything, you know, and uh, 
you know, I, sometimes I'll sit down the mess and I miss soldiering, but when it's weather like this, or yeah. going on century in the middle of the night, I don't miss that. But then again, the jungle, you just, you sat up in your A-frame, you know, and uh, it was a different time. You actually got 12 hours in it, which again, I thought, oh, this is awesome, apart from the prickly heat. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I loved going on display. It's like being me talking to you now. You know, you can't, you can have a piss up in a fucking matchbox. Uh, it depends who you're with. You know, I've been to some awesome places and had a shit time, but then I gave me to some right, being on Sunny Bridge in a fucking cow shed and had a fucking hoofing time because it, it's who you're with. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely the per- a lot of things is very. Let's get there, per- let's do some. Yeah, that's yeah. right. I'll just pause it. Give it a break. And we're back. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think that takes us up to like the early 2000s, doesn't it? So, um, where were you? I love asking this question to people. Where were you during September 11th? Do you remember? Yeah, I flew on September 11th. Oh, did you? Yeah, I, I've actually kept the boarding pass. Oh, nice. Yeah, so uh, I just met my second missus. Uh, she's a bit of a bone hairdresser because it was quite funny. I was flying out to Cyprus to meet 40 and uh, September 11th ha- happened and she said to uh, just, one of just, her customers. Just lift this up a little bit. She said to one of her customers, is Cyprus near New York? <laughs> because I'd flown that day. Uh, yeah, so I actually flew on September 11th. So I was flew, uh, I'd just done my, wo- done my ones course, got Manreal to 40 for Kosovo. We didn't go to Kosovo. They sent the Paras instead. From there, I went back to Limpston to start another draft, having just taken recruits through. And then uh, went to uh, 40 after that. And yeah, and I joined 40 in the field uh, at Bloodhound Camp. And as I landed, it was on in Naffy at Bloodhound Camp. Oh, really? And it was just like, oh my God, this is the way you go. That's where I first met George Gill. You know, the sniper legend from the Falklands. Yes. Yeah, well, George lives in Princeton now. He was in the QMs and then, yeah, George had 40 years in the Corps. <laughs> 40 years. And I remember talking to George that night and he said, oh, we're, we'll be going to Afghanistan. And I'm thinking, we're never going to go into Afghanistan, no way. And uh, uh, so that was, yeah, 2001 and then obviously went to Oman and then Bravo Company went straight into Afghan. That straight away went to Kabul, I think it was, in Bagram. Yeah, they, um, weren't they doing security? They were doing the yeah. uh, airfield security? Airfield security for the SF, wasn't it? Because yeah. Delta Company, we were attached to where, uh, the SEALs, which my young boy loves the idea that I was with yeah. the SEALs. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I was with uh, X-Ray Company at 4-5, so we um, we were actually uh, we were at the camp down the road from, from you guys, and there wasn't that many people out there, lads from Fort. It was there in that area. Well, his brother came at Bagram. We went home, Delta Company, and then went back out and went on ship. We went on to uh, Illustrious. Okay. And it was just... I love joining the love tub. You know, we'd, they'd been at sea six months when we got there and I'd never known it. Ever, I'd been on Fearless, I'd been on Ocean. I thought I'd been on board ship quite a few times. And then we got to Illustrious and they, I didn't realise there's a side of the Navy that had never met the core. Um, of course, you, you forget that the Navy's massive. And then uh, the, the BWO, you know, the equivalent to the RSM, the Fleet Jossman or whatever it is, stood down with, and there were 70 bootnecks from Delta Company on board... Uh, illustrious and we were outnumbered i think the the wren's outnumbered as two to one and he went right lads we've been at sea six months you are just fresh meat you know if you know uh, uh he said there's more wrens on board ship than there is of you just don't get caught lads all right 
and it, you know Matt Lowe's was stopping you and going, oh, you look lost. Do you want to go to the? You know, I'll show you to the naffy. And I thought, are these real Matt Lowe's? You know, is this is this real? Yeah, are these real people? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're really nice. Yeah, and, the, and it didn't, never occurred to me that some Matt Lowe's have never met Boonex. Oh really? Yeah, and it was just rapidly learning. <laughs> yeah, rapidly learn. But yeah, they were really on illustrious. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we uh, yeah had a good time on illustrious. I'm sure you did. Yeah, <laughs> we'll leave that one there. Yeah, yeah, we did. We did a an up with the seals came on board with us, and we all thought because we're bootnecks, that's why they're here. But the seals, uh, the the mass, good, no, what was he called now? Master chief or something like that? Crew chief, whatever they call that. He'd been at pool, and he actually said, "Oh look." we've come on board because we can have a beer, you know, all the American ships are dry. Uh, and then, so we were constantly training the eight troop, which was like the GD troop. We had in those days, a, a tank troop, a tank section and a heavy machine gun section. And, uh, so we'd go, the guns would go on the, uh, on the boats. So as the seal team hit the back of the ship, they'd clear the rooms. The eight troop lads would then fill the rooms afterwards. And so would we as tanks. And the guns would go down the side of the ship, could shoot anything that came out the front or try to escape. So that was a theory. So they went, and then we weren't always used tanks. So we were on board, and eight troop and guns went off to do an exercise, and the actual balloon went up, and the actual a real situation happened. So they had to send us. So it was great that the actual real operation that actually did happen during uh, Operation During Freedom for Della Company. It was our section that did it. So we went from here onto Port George, loaded up, on, and then shunt straight on and took down a, a ship called the Sakat, which it wasn't until years later I realised that Sakat in Arabic means uh, holy war or something along those lines. And uh, the Matlow said, uh, what they do is, it won't be called the Sakat, what they, what they do is uh, uh, during the French fishing wars, uh, when you get searched by the Royal Navy, it then goes out on a big whatever APB whatever uh, uh, and so everyone knows that that ship's been searched and then you'd go so when they'd stop another ship they'd go oh what's it called and then they'd check this whatever it was when it was searched and they go oh it was searched yesterday I'll leave that one so what they do is these uh, smugglers they'd change the name of their ship to what had ever been searched the day before <laughs> makes uh, sense yeah it makes sense yeah but this Matlow on uh, had done this and it wasn't, it was him, a young lieutenant, had turned around and went, I've just come from some such, it's called the Scat. Have you checked the grid where it was searched? And it was somewhere like in the South China Sea. <laughs> it's not the same ship. That's God knows how many thousands of miles away. And that's why we boarded it. And the, this oil tanker was that low in the water that water was running Oh, in the middle bit. You know, it was, stack, it was stacked up. And when we, oh, Mega Gucci jumped off the boat, the boat, you know, because uh, we we could literally walk onto it, we'd have to climb up, ran weapon in the shoulder to go in the door. They'd actually welded themselves in, so there was no right. Oh, they actually welded in. We actually got the matlows to come back out, you know, and undo the uh, spot welds. Oh really? And we, that was the first time I ever used uh, PRRs, and it was just oh, just comical with PRRs. Just it was great that we didn't have to because we, then we was on board then for I don't know how long, about a week. And constantly changing over the other team on the Fort George. And uh, uh, just talking on the PRRs was brilliant because you didn't necessarily have to be on your own to guard. I think we had about 17 crew members to guard. 
So a PRI is the equivalent to like a walkie-talkie, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, the first headsets that everyone had. Yeah, so if you were, didn't have a line of sight with someone, yeah, you're not yeah. speaking to them. That's right, yeah. No, these were, they they were right. brand new. They okay. worked about three decks down. But then again, it was a very small, I'd say oil tanker. It was a smaller oil tanker that you could come across. But it meant that we could split up from to go to the heads or something along those lines. But it was a stinking, you know, one of these ships that had been used in India. It was an old Russian ship from the 70s. You know, it was horrendously full of it. And we all said, right, we need to get as many portholes open as possible because if this turns, you know, we're all going down with it because this is horrendous. Yeah. There's no health and safety here. What, what was in it that was keeping it low in the water? It was toppers. Just absolutely, it was smuggling oils and arms too, so we were told. So it just had oil and weapons in it? We don't know if it had weapons, okay. but we... Because we had one lad uh, called Dave Playforth. Comedy Dave, his nickname was. Yeah. Uh, you remember comedy? Yeah, Dave. Yeah, Dave, Dave yeah. But Dave was really a really keen King's Badgeman, uh, top recruit, and uh, he'd get bored. So I go, Dave, if you want to look, search, search the cabins. You know, and some people, again, a bit old school, oh, what are you doing that for? But he found the logbook. Which meant it proved where they'd been because they'd hidden it. Because the captain had just said, "No, you do it yourself." Hence, why we knew the Matlow's on board to where uh, steer the ship. And uh, yeah, it was quite funny. Because uh, Dave would be like guarding, and we'd let the captain have his cabin back, uh, and you'd be guarding him on your own. So over the headset, he'd be like, Dave. Dave, kill him, Dave. <laughs> in the middle of the night, shoot him. Join us in the sea, Dave. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, and then we'd change over and then we're working on the Fort George and then obviously the Merchant Navy are somewhat different to the uh, Royal Navy, so you get back on board and by about three or four days of changing over, they wanted to get a little bit involved, so they wanted to clear us when we got on board. So I was like, okay, yeah. I want to say, you know, for inspection, port arms, and this young uh, raving <laughs> er, uh, er, uh, navy guy from the merchant navy went. No, I know how to do it. So, oh, okay, then open your guns. <laughs> so we, we all started laughing, and then we said, no, no, just let, leave him to it, leave him to it. Guns released, <laughs> and he gave us all these straight. He got, and he, he'd say, say to me, is that is that is that the correct order? I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's bang on, that's brilliant. Man. <laughs> Yeah, well done. <laughs> yeah, well done. And he was just getting carried away with his strange commands, which was quite comical. Guns released. <laughs> so after um, after that trip, so what? That, that was uh, around the time of nine eleven. Then um, did did you do the? Did you did um, the invasion of Iraq? Didn't you? Yeah. So yeah. I came back. I was corporal then. Done my ones. Did my advanced. And as soon as I came in my advance, I was supposed to go to four five, and I thought, well, four, four five have just had the luxury. Of, well, luxury, they've just had uh, Afghan. That was their baby. I bet they don't get the full brunt if we do go to Iraq. Yeah. So uh, I swapped, come back to four two, thinking it was all oh, forty. It'd be forty or four two who do the big thing in Iraq as commando units. I'm not saying that four five didn't because they did. Uh, well, it was yeah. yeah. They were split up in companies, weren't they? Yeah, because cause I did it, and we were split up into like SF support. It was yeah. only um, similar to what we'd done in Afghanistan. So. Yeah, so it was X-ray company. I think it might have been Zulu company. Yeah, maybe they got attached to um, to the SAS and then and then to SB. Yeah, um, and that, and I was uh, so I I went then back to M company. You know, as uh, I was talking earlier, like, as an FSG. 
I think we were called FSTs then, actually. Fire support troops or FSGs. Well, that's what they became anyway. And, uh, yeah, we went onto the L4. And that's when we, you know, as a troop sergeant, you know, actually doing orders that you've been taught on your senior command course, you know, you know it's, and giving orders and actually we're actually doing this properly. And the boss, uh, you know, doing proper battle uh, anti-armour plans and then advice, fucking hell, we should have, this is not, this is not, you know, anti-tanks, this is our baby, this, you know, this is for real, you know. So I think definitely 40 had the brunt of it, uh, whereas we did all the stopping actions on the, on the uh, L4. And that's when we had the classic example where I, I was, the Mickey took out me for a long time where we uh, missed the guy who was bringing in the artillery and we fired a number of uh, Milans at him and missed. Yeah. But the first people on our arcs that day, uh, which, again, because of their fee, uh, but the GD lads were going to engage was J Company because J Company had captured some Iraqi vehicles and the first people in our arcs were J Company and we were going to engage. But luckily, they'd taken their lids off, uh, taken their helmets off and put green lids on, which really stuck out in the uh, desert sun. And they'd put big Union Jacks over the front of the... Uh, wagons but uh, uh certain people wanted to engage them and we nearly took out uh certain elements of j company yeah i think what people miss really not miss they don't understand with war is war is chaotic oh god yeah and you can plan all you want on a map you can have all these awesome uh you know, standard um, standard operating procedures for what happens if this happens, what happens if this happens, and you can drill, you know, those um, anti-ambush drills or those contact drills. But as soon as something happens or that first contact or round goes down, it all just goes out the window. Well, we what I found was, uh, especially my first contact, uh, on the L4 was uh, we were all Northern Ireland trained you know don't shoot don't shoot don't shoot so when the opportunity did come engage the lad went me I went engage you know it was mine you know take me and we almost had an argument yeah engage there and then and then as soon as he did fire and then I had to literally argue with the next fire again and we missed and this guy got away and you know, we decided it was the food party in this car that had been bringing in artillery. And we'd completely, God knows how, the, Jan Richards who fired, I think, the third or uh, missile, I think the, the windows were open and it literally went through the windows. I don't know, I don't know how he missed it, but he did. Oh God, Mortars just happened to be walking past, Phil Cooney walking past at the time. He was the OC, I won't say a thing goes. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh no. And, uh, and then when the opportunity arose again, later on, a few weeks later, when we was actually in Basra, uh, I learnt by my mistake because I tried to give a full fire control order, a full pusses section, you know, the full all the way through. Mm. And actually, we didn't. I should have done a brief. And when it came to doing it for real in Basra, you know, knowing exactly what had happened about a week before, I just, you know, didn't even shout, "Watch my tracer!" Just fired myself. And then everyone joined in. And of course, you know as well as me, once you're allowed to fire, and everyone knows you're entitled to engage. Is getting them to stop is the problem. It's yeah. not going to do it. You know, stop, stop. Okay. Yeah. You know, I think Bugsy's point five picked this guy up and took him into a, yeah, 
but there we go. <laughs> yeah, those those uh, those those early days of the Milan and stuff. It was um, it was a it was a good weapon system for the time, but your brother would have or they would have been used in in the Falklands yeah, before yeah. the Falklands as well. Yeah, I remember. Uh, so the first first person, the guy who took me on my threes course, mine and Briggs's and Pubs, uh, on our threes course, uh, uh, was a guy called Eric Barber. We all called him Dodgy Eric. I remember saying to my brother, oh, Dodgy Eric's dude. And brother went, uh, yeah, he might be a bit fat nowadays. Don't take the piss. In the 70s, he were renowned for filling in players in Northern Ireland. So, like, oh, really? And uh, and he was the first guy to engage uh, with Milan on operations in the Falklands. And he told me the day afterwards, and it was a little bit like the day I just spanned that and there. And he said, K Company had been bogged down on Harriet. They were attacking. They hadn't got comms. Uh, the uh, uh, other sections didn't know what was happening, so he went right, engage, and they didn't have uh, Meyer in those days. They used to put a loom up apparently and fire, and when a loom popped or happened to pop, they then fired the Milan. And because he'd engaged first, all the other sections then joined in, which took Harriet. But it was because of Eric, and he should have got some. I, I don't even know if he got anything for that. He probably didn't because. He, he was just a dated span. Yeah, or probably and, no one and, had and, seen him do it, it. No one had seen him do it because he was a corporal, HW2, in charge of a section. And I remember him being very bitter because the sergeant had gone back to count rounds or something. Oh, really? As you get certain people. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, being in the 90 tanks, the, the adaption to the javelin later on was, was, was a lot oh, better because... It was, uh, it was phenomenal. Is that it's just oh. falling off the table there? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I remember, um, I remember using the, using the javelin. We used it um, in the Al Jazeera, and something very similar happened uh, happened to us too. Where, um, you know, we had a uh, a Ford recce party come through in in an SUV, and he'd basically just come up to watch us or dick us and as he was driving off i had um hm infield with me excellent guys. and i was like that I, I was on the wasted went to the RAF. yeah i was on the uh, messed up there. <laughs> i was on the man i was like shall i engage shall i engage and he was like oh, you know wait and we were waiting to get you know it was one of them classic mm. ones where do we fire or don't we because no one had done it before yeah you know not live anyway and then by the time it came to do it the guy had gone yeah and you know i think those lessons learnt later on especially during the herrick periods oh, anyway you yeah. like that do you know what fuck yeah. it you make the split decision you make yeah. that decision then you talk about it afterwards yeah i i was lucky on my on the one that the tour that i can honestly say that you know it was great for an instructional point of view afterwards but i think if anyone says they're not scared in war, are complete liars or mad. But Herrick 9 for me for with 4-5, I was the unit uh, HW, uh, HW1. And I was initially in the ops room, but we didn't have enough troop commanders and they didn't have a troop sergeant with Victor. So I went to Kajaki and as you know what Kajaki is like. And I can honestly say the time I was with the Victor company, I, you know, I spent more time in contact in that short period of, I think it was just four months with them than I ever did, ever in the call, every day in contact. And, you know, I still shake about it now. Uh, and, you know, the saying, live by the sword, die by the sword. If we would have stayed any longer, we would have, I think we would have all died. You know, it was just, I, I can say now that I'm glad I've lived through that. But yeah, every day, 
you know, in in your jackal full on. You know, one day we're in four separate contacts in one day. You know, including if you include a IED strike or IED, should I say IED find? If you include that as a contact, you know, every day uh, and engaging with the enemy every day, and it was just full on. And we were luckily backed by NOC, who was SC, uh, obviously special forces, and he backed us to the hilt. What we did, you know, and uh, yeah, it was uh, a time that will live me forever. You know, having that GPMG at the front of a, of a jackal and and learning and old days of learning how to crest a bit. Not not just driving on top of a building and silhouetting, learning. And I remember, t I didn't have to teach them because when I got them, they'd been there a few months. But uh, in the days of standing up in a jackal, if you stand up as a commander, as you raise a crest, you can see just over the top enough for the point five to be next to your ear to just get the point five over the top of that crest of that hill. So you're not silhouetting the rest of the vehicle. You know, and but that doesn't mean your GPMGs could be able to fire because, and you learn to fire head on or back on, because if you lie sideways, the the suspension has too much of a beating zone. So there's loads of little things that actually doing it for real. You know, if we are going to go right on the top of the hill, we need to fill some sandbags before we get to the top, to put some sandbags by the javelin gun, by the you know on the front. And if we don't, I'd be dead now if we want to put a sandbag wall on top of the thingy because. In fact, I've still got the round on my stairs where it hit the side of the, side of the door right next where I was firing. You know, so little things that you learned years ago suddenly came on that Herrick tour, came into, uh, came into light, you know. And we're looking at the footage afterwards, you know, you're like, oh my God, I can't remember that. Or us sat there filming a, fuck, a fucking A-10 go past and then watching the film afterwards, what we thought was shrapnel was actually people firing at us. And we didn't even realise because of the noise of the a10 going past we'd actually been sniped at and it wasn't until watching the footage afterwards you're like oh my god that's around you know you know it was just yeah crazy times kajaki i remember there's what there was one point where um we uh we had sky news with us embedded with us mm -hmm. uh, on the on herrick five and um they took some you know video footage of us and and stuff and um at one point, I I got caught out. We were getting shot at by a sniper, and I didn't have my helmet on, and I got absolutely loads of neat shit for that. Like everybody, OC OC's coming. He's like, ah, "Corporal Lyson, where's your helmet?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then the other one, like you're saying there, there was um there there was footage of a of a Wimmick firing back into the green zone, and like you say, you don't um. If you're close enough, you'll hear the tracers, see it. Mm. You know, if you're like, you know, 50 meters away, it's blatantly obvious. But if it's over a distance away, you don't really hear it. Um, you, you'll hear the crack, but you're not going to hear the one that hits you, obviously. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you can hear the crack and thump when the rounds are hitting around you. Yeah. But in the middle of a contact, you don't hear that. So yeah. because there's loads of noise going on all the time, radios going off, you've got all the all the guns firing and stuff. When we watched uh, one of the bits of footage back that went out live on Sky News, there was uh, one of the vehicles and literally the ground, I do not know how this vehicle didn't get hit or the guys mm -hmm. in it. It was like summer, it was like raining in the wow. desert. There was just puffs <laughs> yeah. of sand everywhere 
where like the rounds were just like hitting. It was yeah. like somebody had put like a bulletproof dome over the top of this vehicle. It was absolutely crazy. We yeah. were looking at each other afterwards back in the tent. We were going, fucking yeah. hell. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Amazing, uh, it's amazing how close to the ground you can get. Uh, almost dig a trench with your teeth when rounds are coming in now. How low you can really get, you know, and perhaps going back to the same, especially because you go back to the same areas and you go, did I really take cover behind that? And God, it's like a stone. But at the time, it was like the biggest hole in the world. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was a time that, and as a commander, as a colour sergeant doing a, I suppose, an officer's job, really. And I can I say on operations, I've been a troop commander on the ground. Uh, uh, you know, you, I, I had times to stand back and control the fire like, on almost on your like the junior command course or two IC stand back and control the fire and look and that's what I used to do with the jet with the because uh, the corporals were excellent uh, stand back and control the fire and uh, obviously shooting head on and I had the point five above my head you you can't get on the radio when a point five barrel is only feet ab- above you uh, so I used to get out and stand back and then that's when I got back in and there was holes in my headrest you know it's really? just pure pure look about living and doing the job properly but because the couples were so well drilled uh, Sven uh, uh, excellent soldiers uh, you know and uh, and that's why uh, and and there's an RMR lad who I'd taken on his threes course uh, and uh, you know and they'd all learnt very rapidly Dave Pollitt or Dave Taylor uh, uh, was there with the uh, recce troop uh, you know and it's great to see old faces uh, he was my, um, he was my, well, Jamie Haywood, well, Jamie was my first real section commander, well, when I was at FPG, so can you call it that? Maybe, I, d- I don't mm-hmm. know. But Dave was my first, first, like, section commander, and he's the one who, yeah. um, who, who was on the ground with, um, on Jakarta. So, oh, really? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah enjoying freedom, yeah. I remember yeah. bumping into him at, uh, when I was with 4-2. Yeah, because Andy was Andy married TQ for a bit because he came back. He was with Forty, and then came back. Do you know what? My, another excellent. My memory is so fan. bad around that time because again, it was one of those times where you know we were talking about you scared. Yeah, yeah. All the time, and I was still kind of learning. I was a bit yeah. of a sprog. Yeah, I yeah. Didn't really know. I didn't really know the main characters. Yeah. Andy Merry was our, um, who's a beef eater now in London. That's right, yeah. Yeah, Andy was um, the T, was he TQ or Sergeant Major when I was in X-Ray Company when we were in um, Umkasar. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yes. Again, you know, we had a, a phase of certain HW sergeants in charge of tanks and then suddenly we got an influx from 40 who took over and... Andy Merry was one of them, and uh, Chappie was another. And it was just suddenly a, a, a sergeants who actually want to do stuff and go in the field, not talk about the Falklands. Mm. You know, actually go and do stuff and proper soldiering. And I think both were snipers as well. And you know, and it was just really good to get people like that. So uh, yeah, so and then and then of course Dave Taylor, who's well went ML and he is just uh, excellent. He joined the, he eventually he actually wanted to join the forces as a padre. He was really into his into religion. And uh, well, uh, uh, Dave is so very opinionated, and that's so, but a brilliant soldier and a brilliant bloke. Uh, one of my best friends ever, ever Dave. Yeah, he's do anything for you. He's a typical guy that if you don't know him, oh, you, yeah, you'd definitely. think he was either really awkward or oh, he's yeah, sort definitely. of like, um, 
very not straight laced that's not the word strict but he had a horrendous upbringing didn't he horrendous upbringing yeah. i've uh, do you know i've known dave was a good friend of mine and um around that time mm. we you know he used to invite me around to his house and um his missus would make us dinner and stuff do you mm. remember uh do you remember Dinga, tanky dinga. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. me 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 and Dinga yeah. used to go around to his house and have and have Again, dinner. Another and stuff, good soldier. Because we were all in the same section together. Yeah. And um yeah, I just just remember having some super good times times mm -hmm. with him. And he actually taught me a lot as well. Not by teaching, but by watching. And leading, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and do you know what? I it's think we did a bit about two or three jungles together, me and Dave. In the same section, and yeah, he's brilliant. You know, just hard as nails. And, and uh, one of these soldiers who weather doesn't affect him. And you're like, how does? How is he not cold? <laughs> Why is he shivering? You know, <laughs> he's going to cringe at this because I know he's, he knows he's listening. He's um, he, he's out in the Middle East at the moment. Oh, is he? Yeah, I messaged him uh, maybe two or three weeks ago. I I didn't make his top table, and I'm re and I didn't realise afterwards that people from the unit had gone up, and I could have shared a lift. I was good. I didn't go. But yeah, but yeah, and there's like, but, but being in a troop like that, and then obviously mortars who we supposedly hate, and then like Dave Braxton and uh, Richie Cartman, again, and, and Mad Sam and Smith, Smudge, who are, oh, it's uh, Mad Smudge, who's one of the craziest blokes I've met ever. I was a training team with him, and oh, yeah, that was silly. Do you know what? You'll, you'll like this. So, I, even though I'm a PTI and I have been for about, what, 10 years now, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm still tanky through and through, and uh, <laughs> yeah. I was doing the fitness test at the at the sports pitch the other day, and I was uh, and I was talking about drop shorts and stuff like that. <laughs> it never and, it was, and it was with support company <laughs> as well. So all the mortars lads were like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just it makes me chuckle every yeah. single time, just because they can. Yeah, Kajaki they got us off the shit so many times. I'd never tell them obviously, but uh, yeah, they were fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you meet some excellent guys in the core. Yeah, excellent. mate. What we're going to do is we've done an hour and twenty there. I think we'll we'll wrap this up here, okay, um, and we'll definitely do a second part because we're literally what we're at two thousand and oh yeah we're nine ish. So we've yeah. still got ten years. Go, yeah, buddy, still got ten years. <laughs> about five it. minutes. I'm in the mess now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Goose, thanks for coming on. No I appreciate problem. your time, and um, yeah, we'll speak again soon. Cool, no problem. Cheers, mate. And that's it. If you like the podcast, please like, share and subscribe on your podcast providers and also follow us on the Grumpy Surfer podcast on Instagram. Thanks for listening.